Hello and welcome to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards, and today my guest is Grace Minton. Grace has followed her passion for supporting people to pursue their dreams and live a big life and created her own coaching and training company around that called The Inspiration Factory. As well as, having a, as, well as being a university lecturer in the coaching space, Grace has an absolute myriad of qualifications that include neurolinguistic programming master practitioner and trainer and MBIT, MBIT coach as well which trains people how to access their heart, brain, and gut brain in decision-making, which uh, I'd like to ask a bit more about later. Grace has also recently launched a program called Entrepreneur Inner Game uh, that supports entrepreneurs to adopt a model of excellence for their inner game in terms of attitude and motivational patterns in order to set themselves up for success. Grace, welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we get into this, I also understand that you've written a book isn't that? Oh, a yes. novel. A novel, yes. yes, which we can find on Amazon. Yes, it's cool. nothing to do with coaching or personal No, called uh, Rapture. It's yes. about a mysterious picture painted in rural Australia yes. that attracts the attention of vampires from <laughs> Ireland. Because I'm a fan of um, urban fantasy, so it's an urban fantasy genre. Right. Which is the same genre that True Blood is. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, how, how would you come up with a storyline like that? Well... Creative writing was my first passion. I used to do creative writing for fun as a kid. When I was in primary school, I remember I never wrote short stories from quite a young age. I always wrote like novels. Right. So even in year five, our teacher every week used to make the whole class in library listen to me read out the next chapter of my novel <laughs> about animal liberation, Excellent. which was a childhood response to Animal Farm, I was deeply disappointed by Animal Farm. Deeply disappointed by George Orwell. Yeah, because I thought it was about animal liberation. I didn't know anything about the Soviet Union and the whole subtext. So I wrote what it ought to have been. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. So as I alluded to in the, um, in the introduction, you've got a, a, a long history with um, personal development and yeah. And that's a real key part of yourself, isn't it? Can you tell me a bit more about that? So I, I had parents who were interested in personal development. They were uh, new age or alternative, but possibly not quite fitting into the mould even at that time in the 70s and 80s because they're also working class. So um, they stood out a bit. But, you know, they went to Findhorn in Scotland, which is a famous... Um, you know, very famous commune, and um, they were really inspired by alternative living back then. And so we were vegetarian, working class, and when the you know circumstances took a not that great turn in my family, um, they possibly became even more spiritual. Um, and but from that point on, I was on welfare, on welfare, and right. really alternative and vegetarian, which is really odd in Australia in the 80s, yes. <laughs> and so, um, so we stood out a bit in our local neighbourhood. But um, So they did different types of um, personal development things that they were introduced to, seeing places like Findhorn when they travelled, and they did it in Perth in some of the first groups here that did it. Um, what is Findhorn? Findhorn was a, it still exists, a commune in Scotland. Right. Um, it's like a, probably one of the most famous eco-villages now. I've probably called an eco-village. Right. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I was exposed to communal living as a kid. They 
were quite involved in pretty much everything in some ways not being middle class meant they weren't targets for things like Scientology and things where people would get ripped off in right. cults so so they would just you know get involved and be part of the community and so as a kid I got exposed to things like that I remember comics with Hindu characters like Ganesh the elephant you know a lot of blue characters and stuff like that yes. and spending Sunday at a commune in Dalkeith back when people would rent those giant houses yes. communes so by the time I was 14, you know, I was quite familiar with, you know, different humanistic psychology things and spiritual, you know, alternative spiritual things. Um, and I got involved in a not-for-profit organisation that had a very social context for personal development, which really worked for me because, you know, I was really kind of on the pointy end of the class structure here in Australia, growing up on welfare. And um, so... You know, I was able to attend the classes for twenty dollars a week, and right. um, and then which I, classes were these? They were in co-counselling, which is yeah. a not-for-profit where people learn and exchange counselling time. And that was before coaching really existed. Co-counselling was developed in the fifties in America, um, and yeah, I had a great experience. You know, through that, and you know, so when I was fourteen, I decided, you know. It hadn't been that easy growing up on welfare <laughs> and um, you know whilst my parents always did their best they were also human like every other parent so um, I felt that I didn't want my you know experience to my experience in my childhood to determine my future so right. at 14 I learnt this method and started running um, support groups with other teenagers inside that organisation and workshops on the weekend with adults and teenagers by the age of 21, outside of my paid work, I was teaching people that method. And method I loved co-counselling. Yes. Which is an emotion-focused counselling method. So it's, it's interesting. So who, who are you coaching this to? So it was peer-based. So everyone who's a leader in that method is also a client, which right. is really nice. There's no power, no uh, power imbalance in the method. Um, no diagnosis, it's outside the mental health system. And even though it's emotion focused, it's it's also focused on people's empowerment socially. So the client chooses their own agenda for their own work, exactly as they would in now in coaching. So right. very much, almost like a precursor of coaching, but with this big fo uh, focus on emotion that you don't have in mm. coaching. For, yeah. for people who don't quite get the subtle difference, what's the difference between counseling yeah psychotherapy coaching yeah it's a, and, yeah. and when when would you choose which yeah. one it's a really good question so um, I would say one of the key differences is that if if a method is inside of the mental health system and the mental health system discourse meaning to the talk about people being unwell or needing you know help right yeah so, so most counselling is for people who are not resourceful enough like right. to just function. And the same would be for therapy, but in the therapeutic framework, you also get a diagnosis. So you get a, you know, a name, a label, and the, the therapist... Such as depression, exactly. anxiety, yeah. chronic and the, anxiety. That's right. And the professional in that, the therapist, is 
you know, has some expertise in a treatment plan, so they can say for this thing that you have, you know, in a similar way, a doctor would have for a physical thing. Okay. This is the stuff, you know, the things you need to do to to get back to functioning. And some of the things that they, would, some of those words that give people, they would also say, there is no getting back. Like it's oh. just this is the way it is. Um, it's just coping. It's living with it. So it's quite a, you know, the mental health system has its own history and. But you know that's the that's the main thing that's funded that people get pushed into if they have a, have yep. a hard time. Um, and coaching, and NLP, and also co-counselling would all be considered outside of that. So okay. that in all of those systems, the people who know the methods are not trained to diagnose. They don't have an expertise in a treatment plan, and they understand that the person participating in the process is resourceful enough to function in their day-to-day life. Right. So so the client role, the person who you know uses that method for their own benefit or outcomes, uh, you know, is directing the process. They're basically saying, I want this to change. I want okay. to change this in myself or I want this to change in my outside world and so I'm going to do the work on myself to create that change in my outside world. So you sort of do it, do with rather than do to. Absolutely. So the you know in those methods, um, the you know well trained practitioner knows to work cleanly and to not be directing someone as the right way to be, the right way to live your life, um, and more facilitating someone to to find that for themselves. Right. So it's based in humanistic psychology, mm. which is like alternative to the mental health type uh, illness model, um, which came out in the 60s and really underlies all the alternatives, you know, including coaching <coughs> and NLP. So um, in humanistic psychology, it's all about realising the potential, self-actualising, you know, living a meaningful life and always developing and growing. Yeah, so it's not about... Learning well, doesn't stop yes, at the end of school. Yes. It continues and we grow and expand. That's right. And, it, you know, the assumption of humanistic psychology was that everyone is motivated to continue to grow, that there's an, there's a enjoyment of that process in life, um, that people, when they, when they act on and develop their potential, this is where happiness comes from. Yeah. Striving to be all yeah, you can be. exactly. So that's... That's fundamental to all of those alternative methods to the to the mainstream. When NLP was first developed, it was considered a um, alternative psychotherapy. Right. Yeah. I'll ask you a bit more about never call NLP it that anymore because they talk about it like it's a coaching method. So right. that's really a, there's been an evolution in forty years as coaching has arrived, if you like, in the scene and it's helped help break the two things apart, if you like. Yeah. It's clearer for people what they're entering into. How do you find, as somebody that works in the personal development space, um, it, it, it seems to be quite a, a vogue thing that people want to help people. Um, how much is it that they, how much do you see in your contemporaries and what have you that it's not necessarily that they want to help people, but there's almost sort of like a projection of they want to help themselves. Yes, um, I would say that I was lucky that the first method I got involved in was peer-based, where there was an exchange of 
of attention or listening and because I received as much as I gave yes. and and I think the danger of coming in only motivated to help people is that you don't realize you know what what continues in your own journey like you don't realize the value of of continuing your own journey and you can fall into the the trap which is quite seductive of being an expert about other people's minds right there's a power in that that's very seductive for many people so even yeah. though they say they might want to help people they, want to they often this. also have an unconscious desire for a power or expertise about you know how to yes. be how to think how to feel how to yes. behave so they will one of the main things that the coaching training has to do is to is to get that out of the system the the wanting to give advice which is well intentioned but comes from that basic assumption that you know better than the client yes about their own life their own work their own world yeah. it's interesting that this week I um, also did an interview with a lady called Brisbane Garrett who's one of the five uh, Jungian analysts in Western Australia and she was explaining how uh, the training she went through to become a Jungian analyst and that involved a huge amount of work upon herself because she was talking about oh. you, know, you have to be aware of your own blind spots as well before you can get into this stuff and, and she was also talking about the fact that um, and I see parallels here in, in terms of everything you need is within you and it's a matter of finding it and facing the scary stuff and behind that is is the is huge amount of resources and energy that is there to be tapped into I would say that's the that's fundamental to all of those methods we've talked about NLP co-counseling and MBIT all of them assume that there are massive resources internally that people need to and can just access rather than to be given advice. Um, and, and I would say that when people want to help people, their first instinct is mentoring, but they would call it coaching. Yes. So, but what they're actually doing is mentoring, yeah. which is well-intentioned advice based on their own experience. Yes. Often very generously given, so not not a bad thing. Yes, you know, mentoring is an awesome thing that stretches back thousands of years in our society. So it's an, an awesome and beautiful thing. It's just a shame that people don't also understand that there's something else that can be even better. Yeah, but it requires more discipline and skill, and potentially some deliberate methods. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's what I would say. It's actually therapy, mentoring, coaching. That that is the triad that people are constantly negotiating when they're learning these yes. methods. Yeah. So I think coming out of this for me is a really important point in here before we dive into what is NLP, what is MBIT and stuff like that, which we'll get into, is, is that point that I see a lot of uh, friends, contemporaries and people, they want to change themselves. Yeah. And, and to me, it's not necessarily changing yourself. You have everything within you. You know, it, it's sometimes it's almost um, not necessarily self-development, but self-revealing. Um, yes. That you, you, it's already inside of you. Okay, you might need to work on the way you look at yourself or look at the world, but that's just like a behaviour, as opposed to at, at the core of yourself. You have everything you want, and you're great and wonderful and beautiful there, and it's just finding that. 
That's right. I think something that gets lost, and I don't know if it's cultural, if that's why it's so easy for people to lose themselves mm. in this, is in these in these methods, even where they're non-diagnostic and they have that basic assumption that people are resourceful, people still seek constantly to become perfect and to not understand that as they are, they are okay. So, you know, one thing with, you know, with all of these methods ought to be that even if you don't do them, you're still okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's yeah. not, it's not that you have, it's not that you're not good enough. Yeah. Um, so I often hear that come out in people and I think there is just something in our culture that hooks in to feeling not good enough. Yeah. Not that, good that enough, not deserved. get stuck on the self-improvement you know, on a self-improvement um, journey that isn't, isn't really based in knowing their current awesomeness. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's something I notice a lot. Yeah. So people sometimes, I think, are surprised by how normal I am in my training. There's a lot of pretense in the NLP industry. Yeah. In the trainers, there's a lot of pretense and stagecraft and mask wearing and my training originally in co-counseling was completely authentic everyone was a client and a leader it was peer-based yes. no power so for me that is where the the fundamental joy is for everyone to see we're all good we're all okay we're all capable yes and you know i can think well about you and you can think well about me we're all human beings yes. so it's not that I'm expert about you. So, you know, when I'm coaching, I do have more information about the method, but I'm very transparent in the process with the clients. So I'll go, you know, I'm wondering about this and I'm thinking this and I've heard this and I'll go, yeah, I heard, me. I heard myself say that too. And then I'll be engaged in the process of working it out. So it's not that I, you know, it's like they're part of the process. There's yeah. two of us thinking Both about their outcome together. It's two people working on one person's outcome. If you can let go of wanting people to think you're better, if you can let go of that ego thing yes. in this work, but that's a real trap. Yeah, yeah and, and there's a big pressure on this to be be perfect, um, you know, survival of the fittest, Darwinian type, you know, be, be the best we can be and try and be perfect and always be striving. And that's what gets rewarded in the corporate culture and, yeah. and things like that. And at school with grades and, and what have you. So, you know, the programming's there. Yeah, this, one of the books that I love so much is Status Anxiety. And it describes the cultural, this moment in history where, you know, thanks to meritocracy, the concept that you can rise to the level of your capability, you know, people, feel that wherever they are in society is a reflection of their, their goodness and their capability. Whereas in previous you know, versions of a society and different structures like feudalism, you were just born into a class because God put you there. Yes. There's nothing to be done about it. And you can be smarter than the person in the class above you or the king, it doesn't matter. They are where they are and their power comes from where they are, not not their yes. their intellect or their talent. So that that impact on people of that assumption that we rise to the level of our ability 
completely deletes so much complexity about life and society and makes it all down to the individual. Mm. And, and if you buy into that and you compare yourself to everyone as if, as if you all started with a clean slate together in the same place, with the same family and the same history, you know, of course you'll be anxious. You'll never feel good enough. Yeah. yeah. But you can't. There's no one else exactly like you. You can't compare yourself to others constantly to find out how good you are. Yeah. It's just you. You have to know. You just have to know mm. that you are good. Within yourself. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so um, let's go to the point where you, we've talked about your, uh, your rich history and in, in curiosity and... Um, in personal development and co-counseling and everything, at what point did you suddenly start to think, right, I'm, I, I need to make some money, I'm, a, I'm becoming yeah. an adult, um, this is what I really enjoy. Um, you know, did, did, were you working in jobs before and then all of a sudden get to the point of going, right, this is my passion, this yeah. is what I want to do, I yeah. want to make some money out of it. Can you tell me a bit about that and how that came about? Yes. And I think that somewhere in there, there's, yes. I think somewhere in there, there's, there's, there's Grace's cunning plan, isn't there? Yes. So, um, my story was, you know, I was raised on welfare in, in a generation that was told to stay on to year twelve to get a job if the recession hit, and and I believed if I could go to uni, I was like the first in my my family to go to uni, I would be guaranteed a job. So I went to uni and studied creative writing <laughs> and cultural studies, which was about things like status and good society and things like that, because that's, that uh, book comes from that kind of field. And, um, and you know, I had this mind-blowing education in the arts about how we create meaning and as a culture and, you know, it was awesome training in critical thinking. And uh, I came out the other end into the recession of the 90s and... Um, and basically would do any job, any job. <laughs> so yeah. I ended up working on a sheep station as a governess for a while. And then, um, and then I worked in admin and was pretty happy to have a job, to be honest, because, you know, where, from my perspective in my math, um, internally, I believed pretty much getting a job was a bit like winning the lotto. Like it was hard, you know, it wasn't guaranteed. So... Um, whatever job I had, I was always pretty happy. And um, and in the evenings and the weekends, I'd be living this double life, doing this personal development stuff. And so, you know, working, sometimes taking quite a lot of leave without pay to fly around Australia, doing weekend residential mm. workshops and and um, overseas to workshops on specific topics that I'd specialised in developing, you know, empower, empowerment work around. And then I'd come back to my meek and mild job. So I was living a bit of like a Wonder Woman life with a secretarial day by day and superhero by weekend. Superhero <laughs> yeah. But where I'd be, you know, running residential personal development with big numbers of people and um, with quite getting quite a lot of respect. And then as a secretary, not very much respect. So it was quite a this weird life, but I was having quite a lot of fun. And, um, and then... I got to a point where I thought, you know, I really should have a career. <laughs> so, right. So, uh, it happens, doesn't you know, it? It like, creeps up. I was in the 20s and I was like, I should really focus on something proper to get paid properly. 
and you know, and it's quite tiring having kind of two jobs constantly, really. So I should you know have more time for other things. So um, I by then I'd done my honours in uh, cultural studies, and so I had first class honours, bachelor of arts, and I needed to have a career of some kind, and I um, decided that I would take a year off doing things for free um, and created a project, which was a bit like a personal development project, called My Cunning Plan, which meant my cunning plan to get paid to do work I love. And so right. I was going to spend a year researching how do, how do you pull this off? How do you pull off getting paid to do what you love? Um, and I really had an attitude in that year of notice every opportunity like every opportunity I'd had a I'd had realized I'd had an aha moment where I realized that I'd had quite a few opportunities that I hadn't taken up right and so I was determined right in this year and from now on why didn't you take those up well some of them weren't that easy to take up like if you were you know supporting yourself financially you couldn't Mm. work for free yeah where other people might do that work experience get that work experience opportunity I couldn't really stop working <laughs> and yeah. work for free for three months so things like that but but you know I never really some like sometimes well, I realized that I had given I gave up more quickly than maybe I ought to and I, I don't know if this is something that you know others have noticed in themselves but there was a moment where I realized that um you know, I had an assumption about how hard it was, for example, to get the kind of job I wanted, just a professional, middle-class, ordinary job, right. that, you know, that breaking into that would be somehow really hard and that this belief has created a filter where I gave up easily. Oh, okay. I'd realised that that happened. So I decided to spend a year taking up every opportunity and putting myself forward instead of just a little bit, but really Full. putting myself forward. Yeah. yeah. So writing proposals about things. So what sort of things were you putting yourself forward for? Well, the first thing I put myself forward for was, I got asked actually, and then I wrote the proposal, but I got asked if I would lead um, a support, a background support kind of team using co-counselling at the um, International Youth Parliament that was kind of coming to Australia and Canberra that year. And um, because I was doing a lot of work with uh, Kind of personal development and young people like teenagers and people in their 20s and it was all about that and so they were like well hey, you could come and support you guys could come and do something extraordinary at the youth parliament and support the young people there to be resourceful and yeah you know kick kick ass in the world so that was one of the first ones that didn't make it so moved on as yeah. the project like, do try something keep going and so the next thing i did was um i wrote a proposal to take my part-time but then I was part-time because I negotiated with my employer. I was quite good at negotiating with my employers to make my role part-time so I could go to art school. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, so then I came out of that knowing that, yeah, I didn't want to go down the path of trying to make a living as an artist. Um, so six months later, I knew that. And so you weren't really sure what you were going to do in here? You no, just the whole year up. was about, like, you know, pursue the dream and, and you know, dream, try it, try it, yeah, and see what happens and, and respond, you know, so, and keep going. So it was a massive year. <laughs> so, um, and so the next big thing where I put myself forward was, uh, I think 
was a form for a scholarship in the company. And I was quite upset when I didn't get that because I was secretary and I was an engineer. <laughs> and I thought that was very unfair. Yes. And then, and that was a real point for me of going, oh, I really clearly had enough of being a secretary. I need to accept this secretary thing now. Like, when I got that upset, I realised, well, this is, I've done this too long now. And um, so, time to be wonderful by day as well. And, <laughs> and um, so, um, I, um, I put myself forward then by putting a proposal to, because I worked in human resources in a large company, had a lot of, as, a, as the PA for the senior manager, had a lot of information about how HR worked and um, the roles, the budget. Like, you know, as a PA, you know everything, really. Yes, often in, they do. In detail, like you're handling the detail in the background. So I wrote a detailed proposal about making my role redundant upping the level of the secretary that I managed below me so that there'd be less turnover in that role and transferring me into a vacant role as a graduate consultant and giving me the equal opportunity officer, um, you know, equal opportunity diversity management work that none of the guys in the consulting team wanted but that I really wanted. Because okay. by then, I'd, you know, I'd been doing personal development as social frame social context for a long time i've been to the un world conference on women and um done a lot of social activism for years so i've been the women's officer at uni so i had like a ridiculous resume of social context social change yes um and i was probably the only person that passionate about it in hr so i made a proposal to give me that work and make me a consultant awesome and they said yes so that's how I started working in human resource development, and, they, and that was the of the opportunities on the list that I was pursuing. That was the one that came through. Yeah. yeah. And the awesome thing about that was because I'd researched this thing called coaching that hadn't yet arrived in Perth, um, and people in this field did coaching, and I was like, this is the closest thing to right. what I've been doing unpaid. Right. I'd, I'd done enough research to realise if I became a consultant or a therapist, I would not be doing what I, what I did, you know, basically for free. Yes. Uh, that it was something different. So I'd, I did enough research to know it was the distinction. dealing with people yeah. who are I did the need re- to help yeah. and broken. I did the research to know that working as in social welfare wasn't going to make the need for me in terms of yep. what I wanted to help in the world that working in the welfare system did not work for me so I didn't want to be a social worker so I did a lot of research right. in that time um, and that was the core one of the two things of the, the cunning plan was right. use your research skills for your own benefit yep. <laughs> and to put yourself forward you know when there's an opportunity take it don't, yep. don't turn it down so see the opportunities and take them and yeah it was a great year that changed my life yeah. yeah, and then how did you go from there to setting up the inspiration factory? Well, uh, I I knew that I wanted to work in coaching, and so after I did my postgraduate qualifications in HR, I did a coaching call straight away, and then from there I learned NLP, and I had um, always had an eye on working for myself because um, I always wanted to do something transformational that I thought would be very hard to do in a paid job. So I always felt, you know, that I may need to work 
for myself to be able to do this work. Yes, um, create it the way yeah, you want it. Yeah, that, you know, that's, that was just the way of the world. And uh, so I guess I was always up for starting a business. And um, after a while, having you know, a great time as an internal consultant, I got recruited by an uh, external consulting company that I'd been working closely with in a project internally in yeah. an organisation. And they were a small boutique consulting. Like there was two partners and me. I was the only employee. So I was really close to the business. Um, so it felt like you know I got to say in the strategy, and I got to see what's involved in running a business, and it was great. Because it really made me go, oh, I want to do that. I want to yep. have a business of my own, and to know what it meant um, practically. And I think that was quite lucky in some ways. I think a lot of people go into management consulting as external consultants and end up in some pretty hard roles, like in some pretty hard cultures. Yes. Yeah, and I, I oh, landed I in a really <laughs> nice place. I ran, landed in a place where I was really valued and nurtured and where everyone was authentic and, um, you know, I was really close to the coalface of, of what it meant to build a business. Yes. Um, with some really so you're getting capable that. people. So you're getting yeah. that exposure to business building yeah. within the work that you've got. But not as a horrible target and yeah. not, not the way that some people get it that would put you off running a business, I think. Yeah. So in that, when I look at that stage, it was only a few years, but I was very lucky to work with some really capable people mm. who had a really you know big blue chip client base and, um, and who supported me to learn NLP because that's what I wanted to do. So I did my NLP training whilst I was an employee there and incorporated that into leadership development and things that I designed as an employee there. And then I got to a point where that business was heading in a direction that was getting away from the people transformation work that I loved and right. more into a side that wasn't of interest to me. And you know they were following the market, the, the work that was available. And so I was like, okay, I need to go break away and create my own work and pursue my original dream, which was working more deeply with people mm. transformationally. And that's where you set up. That's when I, yeah, that's how I started working for myself. But the Inspiration Factory is a brand. Um, people who are listening who are from Perth will know that that was originally a bookshop. Right. So it was a bookshop for 25 years. Okay. So, so the story of how I ended up doing this as the inspiration factory is another story that's kind of crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but I, I would say one of my learnings of being self-employed is um, that, you know, I have moved, like, that I am possibly more entrepreneurial than many people that become coaches. So right. I actually do want to build a business and I get really interested in different things. So when I first went for it, it wasn't, in this work, it, it was in a when I had an exclusive rights to a, a product, so I had a tech startup as my first oh, right. effort. Yeah, right. Yeah, so <laughs> and then I supported myself through, through that doing NLP training and coaching um, with a business partner who was partner across both places. And, and when he left the country, I got that other business, and that other business failed, the tech startup failed. Yes. Um, and so that's how I ended up doing what I love full time. But it's really, it's, it was quite a journey. <laughs> to yes. get there, yeah. So I've been doing this under the Inspiration Factory 
um, since 2015. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I think recently coming across the the research and uh, that you know I'm now getting really involved in about entrepreneurs. It's really struck a chord with me as I've really realised looking at that and I look at my own journey how entrepreneurial. I am that I've always wanted what, to kind of community building. What does entrepreneurial mean to you, Chris? Well, for me, it's like lots about doing it's something again. New. It's very in vogue. Yeah, I know it is a bit in vogue, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, but I would say it's um that when people are like I so I see people come to coaching training who would say want to be a coach like like I see them love coaching as I love coaching, but. They don't aspire to build a business. There's no passion for building something bigger than themselves. Right. So they might want to make a good living or have a lifestyle for the business, but they won't see opportunity, commercial opportunities and feel drawn towards making them happen. That to okay. me is the fundamental sign of entrepreneurialism. Actually looking in the marketplace. See, just having the filters on where you notice it. So you you probably notice people who are really entrepreneurial, as in on the inside, their cognitive filters, because they will you'll be talking to them and they'll be going, "Well, that's a market right there, that's an opportunity there." They talk like that because they see and hear opportunities mm. to make money, yeah, and and then if they're really entrepreneurial, they don't just have the filters; they actually have the motivations. They will act on it. Yeah. So they will take risks. They'll have a higher risk tolerance. They'll so, move faster than other people. So I've had people come in to my office and talk entrepreneurially. <clears throat> and um, where I think, wow, yeah, that's a, this is an amazing opportunity. I could see how that would really work. And, you know, I'd be happy to do this piece of work in that and part of that. And as part of this is one particular story, I'll try and keep this person anonymous. <laughs> so, yep. And I'll never forget this guy. I met with him quite a few times, I wrote a really detailed proposal as part of his bigger thinking he was pitching to someone else and all this stuff. And and as part of the process, I debriefed him in a, in a profiling tool which is based in the cognitive filters and motivations and stuff that I'm talking about. And in that debrief, he came up really high, really, really high on what's called reflecting and patience, which means the capacity to wait and reflect and analyse and really low on initiation, which is the capacity to just move right, and right. do it. Yeah. So a lot of thinking. Happy to go, if you're high on initiation, you're happy to go first and you do it. You, you know, you just literally do it. Go, yeah. yeah. And if you're high on reflecting and patience, you sit back and wait, you're happy for other people to go first, happy to analyze, reflect, it's all in good time. Yes. And people can be balanced on both, it's not either or. Um, so it's not oversimplified. But this person had really high reflecting patients, really low initiation. And I was confused. I was like, oh, I'm so, I wonder if this result's, you know, valid. If it's just a tool, you know. It's like, hmm. So I started asking him some questions. And in his language patterns, they were all inside of reflective patients. So it's true, it's valid. I was like, I'm so, so confused because, you know, you've come up with this amazing idea like normally people that come with those ideas, the you know, high initiation. And I said, wait a second, how long ago did you think of this idea? He said, Oh, five years ago. Right. Yeah. And I was like, Oh. 
that's that's a difference between an entrepreneur and someone who isn't. Okay. You don't sit on an idea for five years. You don't. You can't. So they because you by the next year there's another idea. The next couple of months there's another idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the curse of entrepreneurs is too many ideas. Ideas. Yeah. To focus. That's the challenge is how to focus, not how to act. It's how to it's only to act. Find, pick it out on one thing long enough to succeed. Right. Yeah. So once you're once you're re opening up the filters to see opportunities in the environment, then all of a sudden it's like a plethora of a like a deluge of ideas and it's picking the idea out. Well, it's not so much it's more like if you understand cognitive filters, you so know, explain what cognitive filters are. Cognitive filter, filter is, you know, we all have filters. That's why we notice different things. You would go to the same movie and we notice different things, or we go to the same meeting mm. with someone else and we notice different things. You know, sometimes it's so extreme when you're debriefing a meeting or a movie that you think we'll be in the same cinema. Yes. But yeah, that's because you have different cognitive filters. So you are deleting different things and focusing on other things depending on your interests mm. which are based on your beliefs and values right so you know we all have quite different sets of beliefs and values and when people are entrepreneurial they have a certain set of filters that make them notice opportunity and notice money right yeah so what so this is really interesting so if we have these values and beliefs um, that then influence our filters and then how we perceive what goes on around us, um, what are the values and beliefs uh, of, yeah. of highly successful entrepreneurs? And is this what you're doing with the entrepreneur in a game? It's, yeah, it's not, it is and it isn't. So we're not saying these beliefs create entrepreneurialism. It's, we're saying these filters Right. Based on research, these filters and these motivational patterns are correlate with success and these ones correlate with failure. Right. It's based on research. Can you share any of those? I could do a bit of ruin. If they ever took the survey and ruin it for them, okay. it could be like a spoiler. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because unfortunately, yeah. once you know the stuff and you want it to apply to you, it's quite hard to then fill out the survey unaffected. But I can say that that, that combo of... Um, what's called high money interest filter mm. and high options or where you see opportunity or options come together mm. in the entrepreneur. So, and that's something people might recognise in themselves. They might recognise always noticing ways that you could make money. Like it's almost like a mental hobby. Yes. You know, always notice ways that you could make money. Like there's an opportunity there that there could be a business there. So that's a sign of like one of the big things about you know, the inner process of that makes someone an entrepreneur. Right. It's not personality, it's filters, it's ways filters. of thinking. Right. Yeah. Okay, and, it, and there must be something in there about risk taking as well. Uh, the, yeah, the risk tolerance, um, it isn't, that isn't measured in this profile, in this entrepreneur profile, as risk tolerance, but as a combination of things. So I would say that. Um, there's some big motivations around are you motivated by moving towards a good thing or preventing a bad thing from happening right and where you fall on that scale would have a lot to do with what sustains you when it's scary right <laughs> so if you're if you're moving towards something there's always a goal to move yeah. towards as opposed to yeah that would be one of the big ones that makes mm. a difference to us as as would 
think, do you sit back and overthink it or do you act and solve it on the run? Right, paralysis how, by analysis. Yeah, this makes a massive difference to how, not just, you know, do you tolerate risk as in take risks, but more like how do you respond when it actually unfolds? Do you right. give up or do you persist? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Well, so, it to me. Yeah, so... You know, when stuff what gets happens, hard, what do you yeah, do? Yeah, it's about resilience and persistence. People who are truly successful entrepreneurs have nailed how to persist and sustain themselves through risk, not just yeah, not just places. take it. Yeah, so, you know, like everyone, anyone can take risk, but they continue to live with it. Yeah, so people that can go, yeah, like how do I succeed? You know, what I mean, how do I keep going? You know, what do I? Sacrifice or not do yeah. so well as others in you know in ha- what happens. So there's a whole heap of that stuff that comes together. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably it, a lot. Of, if you, as, as I listen to you talking, there's a lot in there that um, modern day society just sort of uh, gives us plenty of stuff to shirk away from that in terms of when things get difficult, when things get hard. Oh, there's a pill for it, or we can retreat yeah. away from it, or you know, if, if we if something about ourselves pops up we don't like, well, we can just bury ourselves on Facebook and, and ignore it. And absolutely, because I've uh, been doing a bit of looking around around on the topic of resilience this year. Mm. So I've, I've been quite inspired by someone um, in New Zealand that does this amazing work with NLP and resilience mm. in um, crisis zones, and. Yeah, there was some research about, you know, in the Western world with the rele- the Anglo-Saxon-based culture yes. is the least resilient in the world. Why is that? Well, well, they reckon there's a few things. One is that in other cultures, people are more connected genuinely, not, not via apps. <laughs> yeah. Like, as in, you know... Real conversation. Living in extended family, you know, yes. and spatially in villages, you know, and... So um, they help each other when they're in crisis. Uh, so there's a big social component that's missing in our culture that we have a very is- lot of isolation in our culture. Um, and the other thing they think is intergeneration- intergenerationally, even in the West, there's less resilience than there used to be. And they think that's because um, there was a movement in self-esteem that may have been quite damaging for people's resilience. A movement in self-esteem? Yeah, you? it's in uh, the... The, the deliberate attempting to develop self-esteem and the discourse around it in our right. society which says things like you deserve a good life life should be easy right so when it isn't it's a shock yes yeah. you've been fed this one program in and other, the reality yeah, is coming so in in the rest of the world it's more and in previous generations it was like life's hard do your best yes yeah, right. <laughs> yes makes sense but, yes. but, you know, so something shifted, you know, post-war in the West. And also the self-esteem movement happened where it's like, you know, you're really, really good and you've got a lot of talent and, you know, yes. you should go far. So all these things seem to have intersected in a weird way. Yes. And, um, yeah, one of the outcomes is people may be a lot less resilient than they used to be. So it's interesting because, as you say, wanting to be an entrepreneur is quite trendy now yes but people are what they do worry a lot about security and having a lot of stuff more stuff than people ever used to want yeah and you're really putting it on the line yeah when you go away from the 
the wage-based nine-to-five career job. Yeah. You're really putting it on the line and going to high risk, yeah. which can be high reward yeah. or high, high loss, and that could be all the stuff you've got. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. Why is it you think it's becoming trendy? Why is it you think people are being drawn to being entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think really that became aware that it was so trendy recently because... So I wonder what is going on in the culture. I mean, one thing maybe that works changing, and you know, the people maybe needing to create their jobs. Mm. Yeah. I mean, certainly here in Perth, we've had the we had the oil and yeah. gas and mining boom, and everyone was yeah. riding that. I I certainly yeah. did, and and then all of a sudden, you know, barrel price drops. Yeah. Uh, mega projects are finishing, and stuff like that. Highly predictable stuff. I mean, we yeah. we we tell ourselves we don't want to look at it. Um, but you know that the sun is going to set at the end of the day yeah. at some point, and now, boom, you know, we've, we've had these big wages, we've, we've got these yeah. big liabilities, and now it's, oh, where's the next job, where's the next yeah. job? Well, they're not, we're in yeah. one of the most remotest parts on the planet. Yeah. Um, so it's time to get creative. Yeah. And, um, yeah, maybe it's out of that necessity. Well, I think there's an element of that, and I think that would continue now, you know, with the movement into artificial intelligence that's coming okay. into the white collar work for the first time, you know, the blue collar work was decimated by you know by machinery, mach- yeah, like automated, you know, ro- I don't want to say robots, yeah, <laughs> sounds too Terminator, but yeah. um, but you know that happened a while back. The next wave, they say, that the artificial intelligence will be um, the information is that you know mm. what used to be expert information will be at people's fingertips. We're already seeing it in the, yeah. in the law industry where you're getting exactly. law bots that are just yeah. giving you standard answers back exactly. to stuff. And in some ways that's great for people to access legal advice cheaply, but, you know, for people who in the past would have gone, you know, I know when I grew up and I got really good marks at school, it was like, you should become a lawyer or a doctor. Oh, yeah. Or, oh you're not good at science, a lawyer. But so, mm. um, you know, that was the the catchphrase for financial security. So, you know, within my lifetime, that's not going to be the, tr- the case probably anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the, I think, you know, the shifting, the pace of the shifting mm. industries, mean the people who who want to, who want to take responsibility for earning their own income, their own financial security, can, you know, can actually do that. There's also less, I reckon, barriers to entry than there's ever been before. Yes. Business. That would have something to do with it. You yeah. know, when, you know, in 2000, it was 10 grand to have a website. Now you can build it yourself pretty easily. Mm, yeah. Free. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's easy to try to stick your toe in. Yes. Because of the low barriers now. Yeah. Yes. So I would say that's got a bit to do with it as well. Awesome. Mm. So as we've talked uh, um, so far, you've mentioned NLP. Neurolinguistic programming. Now, um, I'll fess up, I came and did a practitioner course with you last year and was absolutely fascinated by it. It it was an amazing experience. I learned loads. It's almost as if um, a lot of uh, clouds, just the fog departed and I could see things more clearly and and I I became more trusting in my intuition and what have you, my communication. But for for a lot of people out there, Neurolinguistic, neurolinguistic programming, NLP, will seem like this strange thing. 
Um, we see it's, it's linked with people like Tony Robbins, yeah. who has these huge events. It has people walking across hot coals. And then we've also seen it with people like Neil Strauss, who, who did, the, did the game and has pickup chicks. And, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you, can, can you tell me more, or, or wait, not yeah, yeah. tell me, but tell the li- listeners more about what is NLP yeah. and what is it about? Where does it come from? Yeah, so NLP is, um, it's a theory and a methodology. So it's very, it's a theory with a lot that you can practice, essentially, like a lot of practical application mm. about how we, think um, how we make meaning and then how those things come together into both their behavior and our experience of the world so it's interesting because it isn't people who come across it will think oh it's just a really pragmatic kind of amazingly powerful psychology but it's not actually it's linguistics meets psychology and linguists were like philosophers they think about meaning and how it's created how language creates reality. Mm. So it's got this particular combination, which I think makes it hard to categorize because it's those two things yes. come together with a focus on transformational change that's not even diagnostic. It's not even about mental illness. So it's it's out there on its own. And it's really was born, you know, in the seventies in California, based on human you know, at the time humanistic psychology was out there saying, you know, psychology could be for everyone, about self-actualization, and... Be the best you. Yeah, and then the the people that created it were, you know, a professor of linguistics, a PhD student, so they were in the academic system, and they decided to study how the top psychologists of the time, and there were some really creative, you know, geniuses going on at that time, how did they get the extraordinary results they got? Purely through conversation. How are they changing people's realities in linguistic terms yep. and then their behavior through conversation, through language? How did they speak, essentially? And what could you learn about that? So they applied linguistic theory by modeling these people. And modeling is a pure NLP process where you say, you ask yourself, you know, if someone's doing something extraordinary, how do they do it even below conscious awareness? And can it be transferred to others? That's yeah. the key difference. Not just how do they do it below consciousness, but can you transfer it to others? Can you replicate that excellence? So that was the main, if you like, research question of NLP. And the people that were modelled were the founder of family therapy, the top hypnotherapist, you know, possibly ever lived, and uh, the founder of Gestalt Therapy. And Gestalt Therapy, again, was an alternative to the mental health system. Mm. So... They came out and, you know, transferred skills to ordinary people in a really short amount of time that allowed for transformation. And and in that process, a lot of theory dropped out. Yes. Like, so, you know, because they were interested in how did they think? How do they make meaning? How do they speak? They weren't interested in why, mm. in the ways they made sense of everything. The mechanics of yeah, that. Yeah, that was the psychology. Yeah. yeah. So... They were interested in, interesting, these people all have completely different theories and get the same extraordinary results. In fact, you could almost say that this person is putting someone into a trance, but she doesn't do it on purpose, and this person does it on purpose. So they were like really standing back and looking with a critical eye, because it's a critical 
theory of society yeah. linguistics kind of not invested in anything and what was born was this amazing method with very little theory of its own but extraordinary simple processes that allow people to to un, you know to change their own thinking and also to help other people change that and through that create extraordinary change so um, a lot of the principles of the beliefs of NLP, you can you can trace back to those three therapists if you yep. want to, but most people don't care. Most people in the world just want results. Yeah. Yeah, they don't care so much about theory. So NLP went off in the main world of people who want their life to be easier and they want to take charge of their thinking and their feelings and their behaviour and spread around the world and um, thanks to a a lawsuit going wrong in America is free your intellectual property rights. So, Fantastic. So it's out there in so many different forms because there's no regulation or control yep. of this incredibly powerful thing. Mm. Yeah. And that's why it's in different forms. Um, so, you know, I like to think of it as being like a high-powered vehicle. You know, you can... Um, a high-powered vehicle is better than an ordinary car. <laughs> yeah, it can take you somewhere faster. Uh, it's more efficient, but who drives it and their intention, the state they're in, will make all the difference yes. as to whether it's a really good thing or a really bad thing. Yeah, yes. <laughs> for others. So some people use NLP with an intention, which is all about their own wants and needs, lot you know, for making money and things like that, sales, and that can give NLP a bad rap unfortunately a bad name yes um, it's powerful stuff oh it's very powerful stuff and it's very fast to learn yeah. so you can you, d you know you don't have to persist for years and be bored out of your brain before you get to the good stuff it happens straight away it does yeah so so you know people can come in with one set of ethics and come out with a powerful tool and the same ethics that they walked in with you know what I mean like yeah integrity levels so I mean yeah. I, I was really impressed with the fact I mean yeah, I, I've done two degrees in psychology, yeah. uh, bachelor's in straight psychology and a master's in business side. Came out with stacks and stacks of theory, um, very little self-reflection in there, although I yeah. did because I'm kind of a self-reflective person, yeah. but it wasn't part of the curriculum. And and then I went to go and get a job and I've got all these qualifications and it's like, well, what'd you do? Uh, I know a lot of good stuff. Um, but that time I spent doing the, the prac course, we we were straight into um, using um, processes and there was some knowledge and then it was how do we use it and you, you practice with your partner and your the partner practices with you, you're learning stuff straight away and already, you know, within within the first couple of days I'm, I'm sitting in the pub um, chatting to a friend and just picking up on his um, not reading his body language as in I know more than you but he's telling me one thing but his body's saying something yes. completely different and for once I'm sitting there saying you know what mate I don't actually believe what he's saying yeah. and he's saying you're right bro yeah. it, it, I actually don't believe that it, this is what I want. this is actually what I think about the situation and we ended up with this amazing conversation and um, you know I came into it um, because I, had the, I have an inherent interest around beliefs and how they shape yeah. the world. It's just something that came to me and I wanted to learn more. But I came out of it so much more. And um, I mean, you can expand on this, but I think um, it, it's a huge, it's huge, you don't even have to get into coaching. If you just mm -hmm. want to learn some stuff about being a better person, to understand how you work 
Um, it, it's hugely practical. Yeah, in fact, what NLP was around before coaching, so it's just been a nice little marriage between the two. Yes. Coaching is a frame, but NLP is a method that allows coaches to get, I'd say, more extraordinary results than just, you know, straight coaching by itself in conversation. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, you know, many, many people have learnt it for many different reasons. I have people sign up, you know, deliberately to become better parents. Yeah. And uh, people who run businesses just need to be really resourceful, and so sometimes they learn NLP for that. Um, HR people learn a lot. So there's different cohorts that it attracts, particularly where I think people talk about it. Yes. In those things, you know, they talk about it. Her people come and learn it because at the dentist, they would have had an experience with no anaesthetic. And someone said, oh, yeah, you should be interested, you should check out NLP. Right. So, if, you know, if you're interested in the mind body. So I have naturopaths come, people who work in the mind body alternative health field as well. Yeah. So one of the things that's awesome about being an NLP trainer is. You just meet really good people. As yes. Well. So, you know, one group after another. So, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I, I came out of it, the two biggest things for me was about, we've already picked up it, was crystal clear communication and just how I communicate, but then also listening to someone else. Yeah. Not talking at them, but then yeah. listening to what they say. And then also this idea of modeling other people and getting curious about well, what does he or she do that's really good and what can I use and what yeah. can I take on board for me? And uh, I'll be honest, that's part of why I'm doing the podcast, because I yeah. like to listen to what people are up to so I can take stuff yes. away. Yeah, I, I love modelling, and it's, it's an area that hasn't been done as much as it could have. Like, since the first models mm. took, you know, that body of knowledge and skill became the NLP practitioner, but the fundamental skill of modelling can be applied to many things, not just, you know, psychologists. Yeah. And um, so... That's been a bit slow on the uptake in the world, this realisation that you could you know, find out how people do something extraordinary and transfer it and you know, avoid having, having you know, years of training and or yeah. learning from bad experiences. So, um, yeah, I think that that's something you learn in NLP Master Prac, but many people don't get to use, mm. you know, so commercially or professionally, but I still think it's a beautiful thing to know just how much is possible. Yeah. You know? Yeah through learning essentially there's a component of unconscious to unconscious mind in that process right and and then there's lots of other ways as well but that's probably the bit that's quite unique you know to NLP yeah understanding that there can be an unconscious transfer that we do already we're born able to do as children you know we learn our first language whilst in the alpha brainwave yeah as a child you know below the age of six we're just a learning sponge because our unconscious is taking in everything. Yes. So we're born with that capability for modelling. And, and that's one of the weird things is you, when you learn it in Master Pack, it's like, and now remember how, you know, remember something that's actually really innately human, which yes. is this is the easiest way to learn something. Yeah. Not through, not cognitively, more at another level. Yeah. Cool. Mm. So we also have mentioned uh, MBIT which yes. is about accessing your heart brain and your gut brain. How, how does that, are they different or are they still related? Uh, no, they are related because mm. MBIT, multiple brain integration techniques, is a coaching methodology built on top of NLP. Right. So, and what's the underlying Yeah, the underlying yeah, the difference that? is 
It's based on recent neuroscience that has shown that there is a level of complexity in the neurology around the heart, which is not just around the heart, it's around the whole chest, and around the gut. Yeah. Um, both of them meet neuroscience definitions of brain, which is weird when you get a picture of the, the head brain. Yes. You think, oh, you're yucky. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh no, I felt a bit ill when they first said that. But, um, but uh, the definition of a brain is about a certain level of complexity, about producing certain you know, neurohormones, about um, you know, being able to do things like filter out certain chemicals and focus in on other things in the environment, having different senses. So these neuro, neuro, like neural networks around the heart and gut do that. For example, the majority of the dopamine... Uh, and serotonin in our body is produced by the gut brain. Right. Um, and this is what um, dopamine is linked to enjoyment and, yeah. and, and exhilaration and ecstasy and what have you. Yeah, and, and also. And serotonin is linked with sleep. Um, as well, well as there are lots of things they're linked to. So, dopamine yeah. is also um, it's also how the front executive functions of the brain. The frontal lobe. Yeah, yeah. get to. Get to engage with the more primitive emotional side of us so um so just recently i've been doing a work, bit of work around with someone who wanted to try nlp and see if it made a difference with adhd with their okay. daughter so we're doing a lot of research on dopamine because apparently adhd uh is you know the lack of dopamine receptors or you know causing the lack of certain cognitive functions um so we've been working around that, and at the same time, we're looking at well, what are other ways that help with dopamine that aren't essentially speed. Uh, so yeah. yeah, so they're basically looking for a way to not put their child on on you know amphetamines yes. at a really young age. Yes. Um, so some of the things you get to do as an NLP coach are quite fun. Yeah. yeah. Like if you've got an inquiring mind. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That's, but going back to the MBIT yeah. course, what exactly are you coaching? people to do oh with mbit so basically you you what they choose to work on in coaching is the same as other things so people yeah. might for example have a a topic of i need to make a decision around this career thing or yeah. um i'm just thinking of some real things that happen more recently um where i've done mbit you might say you know as a coach i get to a certain point in the session and then you know i lose it or go blank i you know, don't really you know, do what I want to do as a coach. Um, so whatever the topic is, as long as it's something internal, yes, like you've got to get to internal. Like you can use MBIT to first of all get information. So just for discovery, so you can you get different types of information as you communicate with the head brain, the heart brain, and the gut brain, and that involves. Um, being in a balanced autonomic state so you have to not Which be means. in sympathetic or parasympathetic but calm yeah. so similar to what people look for in meditation okay but you do it you know, scientifically so it's about the breath and achieving what's called um a coherent state yeah so everything in MBIT is done in this state so it's a lot of like noticing the state of the client getting them back to balance and yeah. then and it's quite it. kind of yeah it's quite slow in that way gentle um and then using ways of focusing which are very much from nlp like focusing inside to notice the internal messages 
as you focus on different neural networks and you'll get distinct different responses on the same topic. So is this akin to our, you know, gut feeling and thing? Exactly, yeah, yeah. except you, you may get like pictures, sounds and even language from the gut. Right. Yeah, so not just a feeling. Um, and you'll get different things from the heart exactly. as well. Yeah, and different from the head. And sometimes quite articulate, like in language from all of them, sometimes metaphors like, right. uh, that change, your pictures change. So rather than just being stuck in your head trying to make a decision, you're actually accessing all the knowledge that's yeah. within yeah. your body. Accessing it in a state of balance, which appears to be the key to getting a wise answer and not a rubbish answer from oh, right. any neural network. And we could all do with those. Not just your head. Like, so yeah. anyone that's done meditation, they know, oh, you know, wow, when I present, my, the quality of my thinking is so much better. Mm. And it, it goes for all the neural networks that when you're not in too relaxed, too slow, or, you know, or too high stress, there is the zone of wisdom, the middle road, as Buddha would have said. So, um, and it's very much inside of this zone of the middle road because the whole session takes place keeping people in this space so yes. it's not high emotion it's also not trance it's like a kind of present present yeah, yeah. and it's beautiful and nicely linked into this you know the whole mindfulness and all oh, that sort very of stuff much so. that yeah and um yeah except with more science it's all about science so yes. we use like biofeedback tools to for people to train themselves to achieve coherence um and you know, to believe it, to see that it exists as well, to be yep. convinced, to understand that there is actually something going on when you feel... So you're actually right. getting feedback during the course, you're actually getting real time. Yeah. You're so not we, just sitting there going, oh, yeah, my tummy's just feeling... Oh, no, no. Yeah, so in the course, so one thing, one thing that you should know is um, one of the things that commonly happens in the course is you find block... Neural, what's called neural blocks where people don't get information it's right. not like it's not everyone's a minority but it happened to me as a client in my first when I learned as a student and and they're very easy to unblock and then there can be a flood of information from a neural network that's right. being silent and be like and that was wild for me for the next few months I was like whoa and the change that occurred for me was pretty surprising so um I had like a neural block to my gut, and when that unblocked, how did that how did that feel? How did that manifest itself? Oh, well, in the actual training, when we went from as I said, the communication phase, so you 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 know you focus in on the heart, you ask a question, you get an answer, you know the head, you get an answer, and you go down to the gut, and there was just like nothing, and I was like nothing, nothing, you know, which I wasn't that surprised about because I was like, you know, surely, what would you expect from your gut? <laughs> and, yeah. um, and um, the trainer, who's one of the founders of MBIT, was my trainer, came and did this weird thing, which you learn on the course. It's called a kinesthetic interrupt. It takes like about 30 seconds. And, um, and suddenly I had like a flood of first nausea. Like, and I was like, whoa, this is really unpleasant. And it took a while to get over that. And I don't normally ever get nauseous. So I did say to him, you know, is this common in MBIT training? People experience the nausea. And he said, if you've had a block a long, like a long time, this is a backlog of data coming up now from the gut as it, as it reintegrates, you know, the communication. And, yeah, I really felt the difference over the months that followed. You, you know, immediately, within two weeks, I was in a negotiation. And 
it was one that had been really hard of mediation in that negotiation. And the other party finally heard what I was offering, which was a really fair and rational offer. And by the time they heard it, by now I had no blockage in my, to my gut. They accepted it, but I had a really, really bad feeling. And I kind of went, okay, good, that's good. And like, oh, now years of trying to get through with this message finally got through. Mediation succeeded, but I feel really bad. And, you know, because now I knew how to communicate, I kind of went away and I put my hand and I go, what's going on? Because I actually felt a physical feeling of doom from my gut, like a okay. physical gut feel. Yeah, like when well, I think did, everybody's felt that. Yeah, so well, well yeah. in the past when I used the word gut feel, I didn't really feel like sick in my stomach. Yeah. It was more a sense of a gut feel. Like, so this time it was like, I feel sick, like gut feel. Yes. Yeah. And so when I was like, why do I feel sick? What's this about? I just got a really clear message, which was this person has never kept a single agreement that's mm. made to you. And you know, this is like a fact that I already know, but I kind of ignored. And that's what it's like to access yeah. what you already know, no. that you delete consciously. So it was like, wow. I was like, true, for God's sake, every single agreement I've ever made with this person about money, they have not kept. Why would I even be negotiating with them? They're, I shouldn't even be in a negotiation with them. And because it's pointless, it's, they have no integrity. And that's it, that was, that, that's the kind of stuff you get from your gut. Fight, flight, safety information, yep. and boundary setting information. Like the stuff that keeps you safe. Mm. It's the oldest neural network of the three. So first to evolve in evolutionary terms and also in the, in the embryo. Mm -hmm. And it's running some pretty primal stuff like safety, who am I, identity. So it's running with boundaries. So after, after that unlocking, there was some pretty interesting re-boundary setting going on in my life. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty dramatic and unexpected thing. I just went along to MBIT. It was kind of an opportunity. Yeah. I didn't even read the book before I went. And then I had this amazing experience. And it's, I have to say that's not uncommon in MBIT. Like people have really big, can have really big experiences yeah. in the four days and go, wow. But it's, it's, in NLP terms, I'd say it's an, it is another level to NLP. It uses the methods of NLP, but this understanding that there's like information and di of different types on different topics, the different neural networks are the better source of wisdom. Right. Yeah. And then they still need to balance out and integrate together for anything to happen. Yes. To be good. Yeah. Because that's the key thing. So it's not about, remember, it isn't about learning to follow your heart. Right. Yeah, all you got. Because in a romantic. Yeah, like know. some people come in, they assume oh, it's all about learning how to follow my heart. No, it's not. It's about learning how to integrate the wisdom of the heart with the wisdom of the gut and the wisdom of the head. Wow. Because That's together, a lot of resources to draw together they kick ass. Yeah. But when they're not working together, okay, you're not that out. great. You're not that resourceful. Your thinking isn't the best and you are not that resourceful. So it's very simple mm. kind of premise. Yeah. So short, short of coming on a MBIT course, what yeah. could the everyday person who's listened to this, what was one of the first things they could do to start accessing? Yeah, there's a book, it's very accessible by the founders of MBIT, who are actually two Australian guys in Melbourne. Mm. Um, it's called Embraining, How to Use Your Multiple Brains to Do Cool Stuff. And cool stuff. Yeah, you can get it on like Amazon or Kindle 399 or you know, just order the hard copy. And... Uh, 
there's also a um, kind of webinar group coaching program called Loving Your Life that integrates ambient NLP and positive psychology just on an information level. Yeah. So every month integrating more information um, and has a bit of a matching book as well with it. So that's a way to access the information without you know wanting to become a coach, if you like, or wanting yeah. to be able to do this full-on thing. Do it yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah, and I would say that combo with positive psychology is very good because that's a really nice, also researched method. Yes. Yeah, or research field. And there's the practical stuff in there that it challenges you to do. And well, not so much positive psychology, but in in loving your life, yeah. you know, there's, yeah, there's lots about beliefs and you know you can make it practical. So it's up yeah. to you to choose how practical you make it. Some people do it more because every month the you know the hour long. You know, video recording or audio recording is inspiring and helps keep them on track and puts things yeah. into perspective you know, and all that stuff and that may be all they want and other people go more for you know I want to do something over 12 months it really integrates a change yeah so that's that's the, what loving your life is for that cool. keeps mentioning a bit throughout awesome so if we come out of that and come back to Grace yeah if we look forward what does um Look forwards with, with the things that you've got on. Yeah. Um, what does success look like for oh, Grace? Good question. Uh, hmm, that's funny. I was just thinking about this this morning because I would like to be able to work from anywhere in the world. That's always been a dream because I am originally from Perth and you know I never really intended to live here my whole life. Right. So, but once you build a business, it is tricky to leave a place, and so. Uh, one of the things I would like with this new venture with entrepreneurs is for it to be online so that I could have that flexibility and, mm. uh, and travel. And I would like to also have the flexibility to, um, to do more creative writing and more art, which is my other passions. Yes. Yeah. So whilst I love being an entrepreneur, it's also quite consuming still at the moment. Yes. So I'd like, I'd like to reach that phase where it's not mm. so consuming, which would mean I would have to focus on one thing for a while. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah. There you go. What keeps you up at night? Oh, what keeps me up at night? Is it what worries you? Worries you, yes. Um, until, what, I have to say, I'm not good at holding on to the same worry for long because I'm quite decisive. So, but um, in the last, you know, the last year you know I did make a decision that was I love the NLP and coaching training and you know I love the work I do yes um that it is in a it is in a very competitive space you know there's some pretty um hard to compete with lack of integrity and sales in the in the industry and you know I don't ever want to match that yes so so I have made a decision, you know, that I wanted to pivot the business into something else. I still want to be self-employed. I still want to, you know, help people, but to apply my skills to something else. And it took a whole year to work out what that was. Right. Catch me up at night. Yeah. It's very tempting to just go just toss in and get a job. Yes. Well, you don't have a, for me not to have a future vision is really hard to right. stay energized in the present. So once that vision started to wobble. But right. now it's cleared up again. I'm like, oh my god! So, but I know that about myself. So, what yeah. um, what some of the the sort of daily weekly habits do you have that help to contribute to your success? Would you say? Um, 
Hmm. One of the well, one of the things I um, I do to you know, it's just the ordinary thing to manage your time, just to do a to-do list every yeah. day, especially because it's like, it could be so long, I think, to-do list. So yeah. just to focus every single day. Um, and recently I started noticing, you know, that oh, that to-do list thinking starts really quickly in my day. Like, you know, when I'm eating breakfast, I could be working mentally. Yes. So, because I work from home as well. So I decided that before I did that, I had to do a, what am I grateful for list? And that's been right. really good for my okay. for how I feel has really shifted at the beginning of the day. How, how do you feel now? Oh, just lighter. lighter. It just feels lighter. Yeah. And the other thing I decided was that if I'm going to if I'm going to hang around reflecting, I don't want to reflect on and worry like worrying and reflection different. You know. Yeah. I wanted so I've been deliberately going. What do What do I want? What do I want to happen? So, for example, with the current course, I started just visualizing how many seats am I going to lay out every morning? Like, right. It's been really funny. Like, as as because two weeks ago I didn't have enough people to run the course, and now, you know, I had. And, it's the and I'd be like, course. yeah, and I laid out quite a few seats two weeks ago. Yeah. Head, yeah. My visualization. So, no, for the NLP. Coaching, oh, sorry. Yeah. Course, yeah. So. Um, so yeah, that's been interesting doing just experimenting like that with ways to start the day and how to use my energy early to set up the day to be kind of lighter yeah. and and you know fun whilst working from home because you can get really drawn into an endless amount of tasks like admin yes. otherwise in a training business marketing and admin yeah 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 and um, when things get hectic. One of the things you do that have to ground you and bring you back and... Oh, when things get hectic. Yes. I think they're hectic all the time. <laughs> <laughs> when are they not hectic? Yes. Seriously, I'm pretty busy. Fair enough. Non-stop, yeah. Okay, and what do you do to... Do you ever find yourself being not present, not grounded and having to bring yourself back? Oh. Yeah, there's two, you know, there's quite different states in my work. So, you know, when, I, when I'm training, I have to leave all of that at the door. Yes. When I'm coaching, you know, I go from like full-blown, you know, thinky, thinky, problem-solving, busy, productive state at the computer to quite a different state with coaching someone. And um, so I probably just have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of strategies for just changing my focus. My right. Yeah. But so like a routine you go through or something? No, I've never done that. So for me, it's just about decision. So right. it's like kind of going, notice your state, and if it's not the right one, change it. And I do have, I guess, internal strategies, but they're very fast. Yes. So I know, you know, for training, I'll notice if I'm in the wrong state and I will deliberately ground myself. You know, standing and yeah. imagining grounding, and for coaching, I notice my breathing because my state will affect the client's state, so I have to immediately notice that. Right. So you know, it's all part of the. But all the methods I do when I'm working with people, state's really important. So you know, you you're pretty well trained to change your state without it being that effortful. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty normal thing. But you know, the ordinary work of the business would be as hectic and as 
as any other business. Right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. If you could, um, if you present Grace, could yeah. go back and talk to Grace, probably at the start of that, the, the year of the, the, the coming plan. plan, and give us some advice, what would that yeah. be? Ah. from back then so it would make them right <laughs> that's the first thing that came up <laughs> yeah. but um from which brain <laughs> to know. But, um, yeah what would I say back to myself back then um one thing I've learned that I wish I'd learned earlier was to be okay you know to not need another person to feel safe to do things in your own business, like to not need a business partner right. for your own self-reassurance. So to only choose partners based on, do they have capabilities you know, that you don't have? Yeah. Yeah, to, to balance something and create something together that you couldn't create alone. So I would give myself that criteria and say, you know, use the personal development. Grace. Yes. <laughs> to clear up anything else, you know, yeah. that, that says you ought to be in partnership with someone because it feels safer or less risky. Mm. Yeah. My experience is it can actually be harder. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a matter, more a matter of confidence and congruence, trusting yourself. If you can work on those things so that you only ever choose partners because it makes sense for the business. Right. That's a Rather than yeah, it's all security. great. It's great to not be isolated. That's always good for us as human beings. So it's great to take on a challenge, not alone. Yes. But, but you know, for a business, you need more. That you should be choosing partners also for other things. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And um, if you were to meet somebody who wants to move into the personal development space, yeah. what sort of advice would you give them? Wow. I would say that it's a it's a very competitive space and that this is gonna sound weird but don't just say you're in a personal development space, you need to niche, you need to have a market. Right. A target. So you need to use personal development uh, knowledge and skills to create outcomes for a specific group. Right. Yeah. Rather than that, just being a broad scale thing. That's the broad personal development market. Yeah. Yeah, not many people go just looking for personal development. They look to resolve something, change something. Yes. Yeah, that's where they would find. That's where you need to be found. Yeah. Yes. Someone that does something. Yeah. Superb. Yeah. Finally, what's the best bit of advice you've ever had? Oh, jeez. <laughs> the best bit of advice I've ever had. Yeah. one from my mentor when I was working for myself the first year. I had this classic mentor that would just tell me stuff. And she once said to me, and she'd tell me in this kind of grumpy voice that it really stuck as well. She'd be like, will you stop thinking that other people know what you know? <laughs> so one thing I would say is, for me, I had to realise that I need to know what I know. Well, I need to notice not everyone knows that. Yeah. Yes. So, but everyone's in your head having your conversation. Well, no, no, no. Isn't okay. she, she was like, you know, you talk about that like everyone knows it. Like everyone knows that stuff. Do you know how few people know how to do what you just talked about? Like to think like that. 
And I was like, oh. She was like, you need to stop thinking that people know that stuff. Yeah. Right. If you've got to... Because basically she was like, you know, as mentors do, you know, you're underselling yourself. Mentors, if they're good, will be like your biggest champion. Right. She would like sell my first coaching sessions for $500 an hour, which was terrifying yes. for me. <laughs> she would like line up a client for me and pay $500 and I'd be like, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, but that was good. That was cool that she would say that stuff to me and say, you know, you know a lot of stuff. Yeah. Mm. So would you, would you notice it? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Thank you. Well, Grace, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah. It's been, um, I really appreciate appreciate you sharing your wealth of yeah. knowledge. And um, I, feel, I feel like I've been, had the opportunity to ask so many questions and, and get into almost like an encyclopedia of cool personal yeah. development stuff. It's been, I've really appreciated it. Um, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for being super honest. I'd like to thank everybody or anybody who's out there listening. I think um, there's, there's stacks of stuff here. You know, as I say, WA Real is about finding yourself in real stories. I think you can find yourself in terms of tools and techniques and things that we've talked about today. Um, there's plenty there to pique your interest and, you know, to go away and read about and um, go away and think about taking those tools on board to be all you can be. So um, thank you. Thank you. And, it's been fun. Um, yes.